0: I see it as negligent to make an identity out of a diagnosis. I see it as um, like soft bigotry if if it's coming from a therapist or a teacher because with the general population, we help all kids grow and develop and learn skills. And that can be done in in a respectful way that respects aspects of the disability. And so when we ignore that in autistic kids, we're giving up on them. I believe that every child is worthy of being taught skills to help make their life better. But I believe that we should try to help every child find their people, their group who accepts them. And they should learn the skills to be social with others because when they're older, they're going to need that for their mental health. You must be some kind of therapist.
1: I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today my guest is Teva Johnstone. She's a licensed clinical social worker in California, currently working exclusively as a coach and consultant for parents of autistic, spirited, and highly sensitive youth. We met on Instagram where she has quite a large following at neurocurious therapist and produces great content for anyone wanting to learn about parenting of uh, children who are neurodivergent. I'm excited to see what we get into today. Welcome, Teva.
0: Thank you, I'm happy to be here.
1: All right, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Before we started recording, we were talking about our mixed thoughts and feelings on the subject of diagnostic overexpansion. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something I actually haven't gotten a chance to hear your thoughts on, really. I, I don't know where you stand. I'm mm-hmm. curious, as someone with such expertise in the field of autism specifically, as well as kids whose brains work differently, such as you know, sensory processing disorder, for instance, What do you think about kind of the current common understanding um, in the general population about the prevalence of autism, what it means, how we should be thinking about it, how quickly we should be using that label to describe things or traits Mm. that
0: people have? Yeah. Well, I primarily see children. Um, So my world is kind of child-focused but I am aware of some of what's happening in the adult community, mostly because I see it online. Um, But with children, I don't think that autism is overdiagnosed. I I don't think that we've reached the realm of diagnostic expansion with autism in particular, Um, especially certain groups like girls and children of color. These two categories are underdiagnosed um, because they present, well, children of color, you know, they don't present differently because of their race. It's just that they're not, they're not having the access to the evaluations or there's um, stigma in the family and they don't want to get the evaluation that will lead to the diagnosis. Um So we know that's happening in some communities, but with girls, they really present differently when they have autism. And so they are often missed. And then after the age of six, usually, the social differences really start to become apparent and they can be sort of picked up then if parents are mindful. And then in the teen years, we know of a lot of anxiety and depression and outbursts. Um, and so sometimes the girls are picked up then when when the other mental health issues present. So I think with kids, I don't think we're quite there with diagnostic overexpansion. Um, I know that there's a lot of adults who are self-diagnosing online. That's kind of a different topic. I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but yeah. So I think okay, with can- kids- Sure. I was just going to say with kids, I think that they're probably underdiagnosed if they don't present classically, the classic little boy with autism who's rocking in the corner, sort of. It's often the school districts. And in California, we have the regional centers that evaluate the kids. And the, the child really has to meet a certain threshold of presentation before they will give that diagnosis. Because once they give that diagnosis, it's funding for them that they have to provide services.
1: So you named a couple of barriers. So one is that I'm hearing what you see as a combination of lack of services in certain non-white communities and cultural factors in those communities that create more stigma around getting accurate diagnosis and treatment. And then you also talk about how autism presents differently in girls. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious to particularly hear more about your thoughts on the latter, especially because this is something that certain parents are coming to me wondering about as well. You know, Mm -hmm. um, let's go ahead and go there. A a lot of people, as you know, are concerned that it is girls with autism in particular and boys, Mm -hmm. um, but especially girls with autism who are vulnerable to um, believing that they are the opposite sex or some other gender identity and Mm -hmm. that it has to do with some of those factors. So, but before getting into that though, I really wanna hear your thoughts on how does autism present differently in girls? Why don't people recognize it and how should we be learning to recognize it differently?
0: Sure. So um, it presents differently in girls in a couple of ways. The first way is that if the female child ends up needing a lot of support, like they're, we're trying not to use um, levels anymore of like severity, but the reality is, is that there are some people that have a stronger presentation of autism and they're going to need more support. Someone might say severe autism, but that's sort of taboo now. And, in some ways um online in particular so the female child who's going to need a lot of support she's picked up early because it's obvious the way she presents but the female child who has autism or is autistic who doesn't need a lot of support she blends in socially more she is more socially motivated And she can pick up social cues better. And so she starts to mask and copy her friends. Um, They describe autistic little girls as socially active, but awkward. Active, but awkward. Whereas the little boy might not show much, much interest at all in engaging socially. And the little girl is very social, can be very social. She also can be very verbal, Um, like hyperlexia is common, speaking very early, reading early. Um, I know of little girls who started speaking at six months. Um, They tend to be very advanced. Oftentimes they're gifted. And so that's another sort of barrier is that parents will be comfortable with the girl just having the gifted label and they will lump all the challenges and quirks under the gifted label. Um, So socially, she's a lot different. IQ tends to be higher. She um, can mask better, blend in better. Um, I'm trying to think what else. She just tends to not present classically like the classic little boy who we think of who's always stimming she might do that less she will pick up sooner that like oh other people aren't doing this I think I'll stop this kind of thing just more socially adept yeah
1: so you brought up the term masking can you explain that for Mm -hmm. people who haven't heard it before
0: sure so masking first of all everybody masks whether you have autism or not, everyone masks. It's basically using a different social self for different contexts. you know, like a job interview. We're not the same as when we're just hanging out at brunch with our girlfriends. Right. So at the job interview, we could think of ourselves as kind of masking a bit. Um, But autistic people mask at a much higher level than the rest of the population. And they it's like they are playing a role, a social role. So it doesn't feel authentic. It feels a bit like they're acting. and they are sort of stuffing other natural impulses, like say to stim, flap the hands, or um look or look away, so eye contact is different, but when they're masking, they might give more on eye contact. So they're disguising their autistic traits in order to fit in, be accepted, be safe, all of those things. And so, they're, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, um, there are a few studies, I don't know the names off the top of my head that show that long-term masking over the years and also like long periods of time every day can start to compromise mental health.
1: Okay. So when you first described masking in the sort of ordinary context that we can all understand from personal experience, Mm -hmm. I really hear you talking about code switching, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be, I'm going to show one side of myself at home with my family, people who understand my sense of humor. I can be a little unhinged. Right. If I'm in a different context, I'm going to put on my professional face and be a little bit more careful. Ideally, I'm actually not very good at that. (laughs) I'm not either. (laughs) But, um, yeah. But, but everyone. Code switches, And if they don't, they probably, Mm -hmm. you know, get into trouble because if you act, Mm -hmm. you know, if you come from, let's say, a rough youth culture and then you Mm -hmm. start acting on your first job site the way you do with your Mm -hmm. friends, you're probably not going to keep that job very long. Right. So it's it's very adaptive. We all learn to code switch. And Mm -hmm. I would say most quote unquote neurotypical people code switch automatically without thinking Mm -hmm. too much about it. And really what I what I hear in that masking. a, a lot of autistic people, as far as I'm aware, are really deliberately emulating the behavior of the people around them. They're like, mm-hmm. they're like, I'm supposed to do this with my face, right? And this with my body. And, and yeah. you know, it can be the same with all of their mannerisms. And that's part of why it feels so stiff and stilted because it's like they're studying really hard. Mm-hmm. So what's yeah. going on in the brains or in the the thought process of autistic people when they're masking.
0: So what you just described, it's an, it's an attempt to um, like be accepted and belong and be safe, reduce the chance of bullying, um, reduce punishment by the teacher or the adults in charge. So they have um, difficulty understanding the neurotypical world of, of social interaction. And so when they want to belong and they want to be safe, they study the behaviors and then copy them. And it's a lot like, um, what's it called method acting? Right. So they're like really studying how others are out in the world. And they try to be that way as well in order to belong and and be safe really because if they start stimming, if they won't look at people, that brings a lot of attention to themselves. And some sometimes people are are mean and bullies. And some I've punishment. The sense. Yeah. I was just gonna say some punishment is really um cruel that they may get. Yeah. I've
1: always gotten the sense and I'm not sure what all I read exactly that contributed to this, what what mm-hmm. all that came from experience. It's just the impression I've gathered over time is that um, people who are autistic can essentially learn the same things as anyone else, but it, go- it like has to go through a different path in the brain mm-hmm. is how it feels. Like the things that come naturally or intuitively to many people, things that if, if we were pressed to do it, we would have a hard time explaining how we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, autistic people have to study it. And when I think yeah. about you know the, the minds of some autistic people that I've gotten into, they usually have fascinating ways of organizing information.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like for yeah. instance, they can actually picture a mental filing cabinet or mm-hmm. a mental house in which they store information and they can picture themselves Withdrawing information. So they have yes. this really unique way of organizing. And I remember uh, an autistic person I once knew was very, very, very smart um, mm-hmm. studying my body language really mm-hmm. intensely, <laughs> like yeah. staring at me really intensely, and then saying, yeah. You moved your hand like this. Does this mean this? Because uh-huh. that was what he trained himself to learn. It, like he mm-hmm. actually read books on body language to try. To understand it. So it's, it's been my observation that people with autism can actually get very good. In fact, they can get better than neurotypical people at reading mm-hmm. certain things if they study it explicitly, the same way you might study engineering.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The processing is different in autistic people. Many um, do need uh, visual cues for things. They do tend to learn visually. They do tend to picture the, the, the image of whatever it is you're talking about. Um, they tend to need more sensory motor input when they are trying to learn something, say, academic. And so there's really um, there's really a nervous system wiring difference that needs sensory motor input or is super sensitive to sensory motor input, and it affects how they learn and act socially. Yeah.
1: Say more about that. What do you mean by sensory motor input?
0: Sure. So um, I'm just looking around where I am to for an example. But so sensory motor input, a child who's dysregulated will do really well often on a swing, and that is motor input that is regulating of the vestib- vestibular system, I believe. Um, another, another example of sensory input is like a child who likes to squish slime. Um, the child who is regulated jumping on the trampoline. The person who likes to feel soft things on their face. So anything that our our sensory system experiences, tactile, visual, smell, sight, um, and there's also vestibular and proprioceptive that have more to do with movement, autistic people tend to have an atypical response to these things. They're either like hypersensitive or they are hyposensitive. They can't really feel it as much. Yeah. Yeah. And so sensory, sensory motor input can really help people feel regulated and calm and safe in their bodies, particularly children, adults too, but I work with kids. So yeah.
1: If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I recall a case of a child with fetal alcohol syndrome, which obviously is not Uh the same as autism, Uh but it affects the central nervous system, who had that hyposensitivity. And it was a real safety hazard because when a Mm -hmm. kid is hyposensitive... Um, You know, the same amount of comfort that another kid could get out of, you know, just kind of fidgeting with their sweater, rubbing their sweater against their skin, mm-hmm. something really innocuous, you know, that kid would need to literally throw themselves against the walls. Like they, they would have yeah. to inflict pain and injury coming mm-hmm. into harsh contact with physical objects in order to get that same level of sensory feedback. So in some cases, this this kind of problem can become quite extreme. Now. I'm curious mm-hmm. what you think. Um, I know you don't think that there's a problem of diagnostic overexpansion with children, but mm-hmm. I'm curious when you kind of take a look at the broader culture, it's becoming very common for kids to have fidget toys. You know, there, there's a whole yeah. industry of fidget mm-hmm. spinners and things like that. And it seems like it's become a normal thing for all kinds of kids, not just kids with any kind mm-hmm. of you know diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And when I see that fidgetiness that restlessness i think do we really need to be doing this and are maybe are maybe kids hands feeling a little itchy because they're not doing the type of tactile activities that are a natural part of the learning process mm-hmm. so i'm thinking about how you know throughout the course of human history we've done a lot with our hands cooking mm-hmm. kneading bread making things out of clay sewing repairing yeah. Uh, Fixing, building, tearing down, gardening, planting, digging, um, Mm -hmm. tending wild or tending our domesticated plants and animals. Sure. Um, I'm curious, you know, that in addition to contact with the natural world, do you Mm -hmm. feel like part of the rise in this kind of culture of fidget spinners or Mm -hmm. maybe part of the rise in the rate of neurodevelopmental disorders in general could have anything to do with our modern ways of living and maybe the absence of things that should just naturally be part of life.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a really um, excellent point to think about with the lack of tactile stimulation in normal and everyday life today as opposed to like decades ago. Um, I've never conceptualized it in that way, but it makes sense. I I do think that... um, There is a like sterilizing of today's modern world, and I do know that children are not getting enough stimulation outside like you were just describing. Um, So it could be that they are looking for it in the fidget toys. I mean, that seems kind of logical, but... I don't know if I don't know if that has to do with the the rise in neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm just not totally sure about that um, but I do think that as a whole, children's mental health, including autistic and ADHD children, is suffering because of the way that we are living today because we're spending so much time indoors because parents are over parenting, helicopter parenting um, and, and the kids are on their screens and they're not outside and they're not barefoot and they're not climbing the trees. I think that all of that contributes to the children's mental health crisis that we're seeing today and probably does also compromise autistic children. And the environment is a big deal for autistic children.
1: I'm also curious as somebody with this neurodevelopmental perspective that you have, what you think about the influence on the three and four and five-year-olds of today? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're recording this in the fall of two thousand twenty-two. Of mm-hmm. uh, you know the the past few years of masking, right? The not seeing people's faces. I mean, obviously they oh, hopefully they see their family members' faces at home.
0: Yeah. But what do you
1: think it's it's done to children from a developmental perspective?
0: Oh gosh. I cannot imagine having a young child and having them home for two years or only seeing masked faces for two years. That would absolutely affect their social emotional development because we all need to see faces. It gives us so much feedback, autistic or not, Um, particularly young children who are not as verbal and the way that they understand the world is visually and, you know, with the affect of what we're doing with our faces. Um, So it's likely that it contributed to the mental health crisis that we're seeing today, although it started pre-pandemic and being on screens. Being on screen so much for learning and entertainment, I just, well, we have research that tells us that, you know, over two hours a day for certain populations is very detrimental for girls. Um, But I just think that kids need to be outside. They need to be feeling the grass on their feet. They need to be, you know, getting dirty with real dirt they need to be doing all those things. And so I think that these past couple of years for people who stayed inside um it's likely that they are delayed, developmentally delayed, socially.
1: And when it comes yeah. to kids who do meet the criteria for a diagnosis of autism, mm-hmm. you know, we call it a neurodevelopmental disorder. So there's mm-hmm. there's the neurological component and the Let's say the genetic component, right And then there's mm-hmm. the developmental process and things that affect the developmental process can also be genetic or inborn, but they can also be environmental. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the jury's usually out on most things when it comes to yeah. like how much is nature, how much is nurture. But mm-hmm. I'm curious for your perspective on uh, well, on on just that, when it comes to autism, how much is uh, inherent? And how much is, has to do with the social or the physical environment. Um, and what do you think accounts for the rise in autism in recent decades?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So you are correct. The jury, the official jury is still out on autism. We, we don't know the cause. We actually do not know. Um, we think that it's somewhat genetic And then the other part, we don't know. We know it's something in the environment, but that could be the environment in utero as well. Um, Mother's physical health, mother's mental health, uh, pollution. I think there's one study that says if you live next to a freeway while you're pregnant, you're more likely to have an autistic child. So that part is still unknown in the medical field. I don't have a strong opinion on what it is in the environment, except that I know that when the children are here, when they're out of the womb, and let's say the child is going to be autistic, they're wired that way. um, If the environment is a certain way, we will see those challenging autistic traits skyrocket. And then when we change the environment, we can see those autistic traits plummet to where the child might not even meet criteria for a diagnosis, but you still know that they're autistic. It's like when the environment is I- is ideal for an autistic child, the autistic child maintains all the things we like love about autism. Because there are a lot of strengths and gifts and beautiful things about these children. Um, And those things remain. And they're different from the rest of the population. They're definitely like autistic. But the challenges dramatically fade when the environment is ideal.
1: Okay, so let's talk about those strengths and weaknesses sure. and and how to sure. shift that balance. I do want to say yeah. what you said about living next to a freeway makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. I, this is not official medical advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not looking at any studies when I say this, but I'm I've I'm pretty sure I've come across evidence that heavy metals um, mm-hmm. in in the bloodstream can contribute mm-hmm. to autism, and that's why you know I, I know there's a lot of debate, and people think that. Those who say vaccines cause autism are supposedly conspiracy theorists. I have not done my research. I'm not going to comment on it. But my understanding of their argument is that it's the heavy metals used in the vaccines that they're mm-hmm. worried about being neurotoxins which makes sense because heavy, mm-hmm. heavy metals can be neurotoxins that's an established sure. fact absolutely um, and it makes sense because the pollution in the air i'm sure there's like lead and mm-hmm. who knows what all in in the pollution from a freeway yeah but moving on from the you know physical environmental factors you're talking about the social mm-hmm. environment and the sensory environment mm-hmm. um and so first of all let's talk about what are those Wonderful qualities that we want to help bring out the best in these in these kids. With I mean, off the top of my head, autistic kids can people in general can be really smart. They can have way better memories than the rest mm-hmm. of us. Um, yeah, they can also be honest. They can mm-hmm. be incredibly fair-minded because of just how rational mm-hmm. they are. You know, yeah. it might take them longer to understand something in the particular way that they need to understand it. But once they understand it, they can have a really good grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're really great at memorizing anything relevant to their special interests. And so in some mm-hmm. ways, you know, depending on what industry you're in, they're kind of the perfect employee that you're going to want in certain roles. So those Absolutely. are just a few of the things that come to my mind when I think about what we love about autistic people. What else would you add?
0: Mm-hmm. I would add um, large amounts of empathy towards animals and, and dis you know people who are disadvantaged and just a really deep, deep caring. It's a, it's a misconception that autistic people don't have empathy. They can actually have like more empathy than others. Um, I would say artistic qualities, some autistic people just have amazing giftedness in art and from an early, early age, um, they can be hilarious. The humor can be really, um, uh, what's his name? Dr. Barry Presant. this is from him. He says um, that they have an, a subversive sense of humor. So it's you know not what you wanna use at the office, it's subversive and it's hysterical. Um, and just so like deadpan sometimes. So, and then there's just like a true, um, authenticity. You know, that first of all, everyone can lie, including autistic people. However, like you said, they tend to be more honest and, um, what they say oftentimes is what they mean. So there's not a lot of guessing that we have to do. So it's just, things are clear. You kind of know where you stand. Um, And just like the love of movement, the joy that you see on these kids, on their faces when they're moving and doing what their body needs for their central nervous system. It's just it's just so beautiful. Yeah. Um yeah, I would say that that's what I could think of for now.
1: And you said that in the right social and physical environment, you see more of these strengths coming out and fewer of the weaknesses, the behavioral problems, meltdowns and so on. So what are those factors that help these kids shine?
0: Wow. So no autistic people, no two autistic people are the same. I do want to say that. But generally speaking, as a group, there are some commonalities. Um, So autistic people, children, tend to thrive when they have a lot of autonomy, when they are not being controlled every moment of their day. I'm, I'm thinking of children right now. Um, so like some autistic kids do really well in alternative educational settings, like homeschool or what we call unschool, which the official name is like self-directed education, but just a lot of opportunity to have autonomy, a lot of opportunity to move their bodies and be unrestricted, a lot of opportunity to seek out the sensory motor input that they need to regulate. Um, And just an, an accepting environment where people are aware of their quirks and their differences and just accept them as they are rather than trying to fit them into some other box. And then I want to talk about like the abs- what autistic and all children need absent in their environment. They need an environment where parents are not fighting, where parents are not cruel, um, where parents are flexible and not rigid, where parents understand the disability and make accommodations in the house, reasonable accommodations. Um, so they need to be around adults who are understanding of the disability, willing to make accommodations, but also challenge them appropriately.
1: As a therapist, I've gotten up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water, 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at organifi.com. That's spelled O R G A N I F I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. All right, so you talk about the importance of the sensory motor activity in order for these kids to stay emotionally regulated. And what came to mind for me was picturing the autistic, maybe not diagnosed, distressed, distressed, 14 year old girl sitting around in her room on tiktok and tumblr all day so i'm curious what happens to these kids when they don't move enough because i'm i'm gonna guess that there are a lot of autistic kids or semi-autistic you know somewhere in that broader autism phenotype who really aren't getting enough movement maybe they had it conditioned out of them um what what are your thoughts on that
0: i think that um any child who is not getting enough movement is going to have issues. And I think that the general way that we're living where kids are on social media um, so much of their day, particularly little girls. So the autistic teen who's on TikTok and not moving, I think that that would probably compromise her mental health. Um, also, What we get concerned about with being on social media for so many hours is what the child is not doing socially in the real world. So, if that's taking away from the autistic child's social experiences out in the world, that is really a problem. And then, um, you know, social media is wild, it's hard for adults. Imagine how it is for a 14 year old girl. I mean, remember what it was like to be a 14 year old girl. Gosh, it's so confusing and you know, people are catty and you just, yeah, you want to fit in. Um, so social media is just going to amplify all of that. And yeah, if she's not getting movement, if she's not socializing out in the world, if she's engaging in online behavior that, um, can make her a target of like cancel culture, right? So people might mob on, they do this with teens. The autistic child is really going to be affected by that. Mm -hmm.
1: Earlier you were talking about masking Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about, okay, so a kid who's already predisposed to learn how to behave through mimicking other people rather than Mm -hmm. naturally absorbing, healthy code-switching behaviors mm-hmm. from their environment. You know, the kid who is masking in that stereotypically autistic way, if most of their social input is coming through, let's say, TikTok, where they're, that's where they're getting people's mannerisms, then what they're going to be mimicking in their masking is really exaggerated, <laughs> dramatic, inappropriate yeah. behavior. You know, yeah. I did... um. I'm not big on Instagram. I mostly read on Twitter, but I do remember I made an Instagram series on histrionic personality disorder and uh how, you know, we, people love to talk about borderline personality disorder. They love to talk about narcissistic. Well, the other one in that triad of uh, cluster B personality disorders is uh, histrionic. Actually, antisocials in there, too. They're all interpersonally mm-hmm. exploitative in some way or another. But, yeah. you know, histrionics, uh, I think that we don't talk about it enough, not necessarily because we need to be diagnosing strangers on the Internet with a personality disorder. That's not what this yeah. is about. But mm-hmm. to be able to recognize the traits of maladaptive, inappropriate social behaviors. And what I see on TikTok when I go on TikTok, which is not often, I mean, mostly I, th- I see people, I, I see things from TikTok that people share on other mediums. And yeah. and it's actually quite histrionic, which means it's really dramatized, there's a, a loud, mm-hmm. dramatic, superficial display of emotion without a lot of substance to it. Mm-hmm. Um and it's and it's attention-seeking and grandiose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then I I wonder kind of how this is all playing out, you know, because these autistic kids, diagnosed or not, they're spending a lot of time on TikTok and they're seeing mm-hmm. this incredibly grandiose dramatic display of emotion and -hmm. they're thinking that's how to be and that's how to get attention and then they take this Mm -hmm. to their families or they take this to their peers um I'm just I'm just connecting the dots in this way but I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this wherever you want to take it
0: I think that one of the risks of being on TikTok all day and being autistic and being a girl is beginning to think that you have every mental health diagnosis that the influences are talking about. Yeah. The mental health influencers. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there can become a hyper focus on mental illness and what diagnoses do I have? And then kind of taking on those Diagnosis, self diagnosing, and then after that, making an identity out of the diagnosis. Um, I think that being on TikTok all day just shrinks your social brain and makes their world so small. And what happens when your world is small? You're depressed. You have no meaning. You have no joy. And then these kids, you know, some of them self harm. Um, autistic youth have very high rates of co occurring mental health disorders. So combine that risk with being on TikTok all day, not being with friends out in the world, not moving your body. It's a disaster. I have and strong reason, feelings about it. I'm I'm kind of opinionated on it.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm glad you're here. Let's go there because one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on this show is because I think you do you do a really excellent job at modeling what it is to have curiosity, compassion, and awareness toward neurodivergent people mm-hmm. without succumbing to victim rescuer dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um it's like you, you have this wonderful messaging about what we need to understand about autistic people, how the environment of autistic people can shift to help them. But at the same time, you don't put all the blame on the environment, all the responsibility on the environment. You still want autistic people to gain tools for themselves. Mm-hmm. And you don't think it's healthy to build a sense of identity around a diagnosis. And, and I agree with mm-hmm. you on that. Um, so how do you strike that balance?
0: It's tricky and it, it, my process is not perfect, but I try to just be honest. Um, I'm someone who is also honest a lot. Um, and I draw from my mental health and social work training my time as a clinician, um, and I combine that with some of the tenets of the neurodiversity movement. For me, I think that we should treat everyone with respect. Everyone is worthy of, you know, dignity. um, And that means... We should help people grow to be their best selves and live their best lives. I see it as negligent to make an identity out of a diagnosis and then not to try to grow and work on yourself. And I see it as um, like soft bigotry if, if it's coming from a therapist or a teacher because... With the general population, we help all kids grow and develop and learn skills. And that can be done in, an, in a respectful way that respects aspects of the disability. And so when we ignore that in autistic kids, we're giving up on them. We're being we're, it, That's like a bigoted behavior to give up on them because they're disabled because they have a disability. So um, I just strike the balance in that I, I believe in my message. I believe that every child is worthy of being taught skills to help make their life better. And we have to think about kids when they're older. And we know that to have a joyful life We have to be able to be in community with others. We have to know how to socialize with others. It doesn't have to look one way. There's flexibility there. But I believe that we should try to help every child find their people, their group who accepts them. And they should learn the skills to be social with others, because when they're older, they're going to need that for their mental health. We are we are social animals. Yeah.
1: That's so well said that we're giving up on these kids if we don't do our best to help them adapt to the world they're living in and find their place and have the skills to do that. And they'll they'll always be different. Hopefully Mm -hmm. we can help support the most wonderful of their differences, right? Without Mm -hmm. the most... Uh, without the most inconvenient thing of the, their differences becoming a deal breaker for relationships, jobs, and things like that. You know, I think about yeah. times that, let's say I'm working with parents who have a teenager that's behaving in a way that's out of control and, and abusive. And, mm-hmm. you know, the parents think, oh, well, you know, she's autistic or or she's this or he's that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes, and how would you feel if you knew your daughter was behaving this way at her first job? How would you mm-hmm. how would you feel if you knew his son, your son was treating his first girlfriend this way? You'd be very yeah. worried about their future, right? So yeah. it's your job at home to try to help prepare them for situations in which you want them to succeed. And and that's possible. You know, it's it's possible mm-hmm. to uh, you know, cultivate your strengths and mitigate your weaknesses, even as someone who's different. It doesn't mean you have to work and think the same way as everyone else, but but you can be held to certain standards of behavior. You know, it's not going to serve anyone for you to get a free pass to scream and cuss at people and throw things or whatever the behavior is.
0: No, and you won't get a free pass once you're an adult. You will not get that free pass. We don't want these kids to be unsafe if they become involved with law enforcement. We don't want them... um, to not have the impulse control that will that will then put them in danger. And so learning these basic skills when they're younger is vital for their future social health, mental health, and um, relational health. You know, intimate relationships, close friendships, all of that. Yeah.
1: It seems like we're so close but so far away from having a really functional way of talking about a person's diagnosis. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking about the difference between I'm autistic, therefore you need to do it my way. I can't think of a more specific Mm -hmm. example, versus, sorry, I'm autistic. Explain it to me like I'm five, right? Not to say that a person who's autistic is mentally five years old, they're not. But I can think of plenty of times that I, as someone who does not have that diagnosis, have said, Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Explain it to me like I'm five, you know?
0: Oh, absolutely. Not because I
1: have to think any less of my intelligence, but because I am not good at that particular subject, because Mm -hmm. I'm mentally tired, because I just need someone to make it more clear, you know? And, Mm -hmm. And I think the same could be said for anything. Sorry, I'm autistic. Was that? a joke I can't tell. You know, there's so many yeah. ways. And it's not, I'm sorry that I'm autistic. I apologize for my existence. I'm I'm sorry my diagnosis right. is an inconvenience to you. It's just a social yeah. nicety, you know, that you could say, I'm going to take responsibility for the fact that there's something different about me that makes yeah. this ordinary thing more difficult. And I'm just going to ask you for your help. And then yeah. we meet in the middle and it's not a huge Absolutely. sacrifice on anyone's part.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is a very healthy approach. Um, It's okay to name your differences and ask for accommodations. And the accommodation is, can you explain that with a lot less wording and just like super clear? Cause all those extra words are like scrambling my brain right now. Um, And yeah, so it's really important to learn what, what you can learn because we we want to set these kids up for success. We want them to have employment. Um, and people say, you know, in the social justice communities, especially online, they'll say employment, uh, like, you know, F capitalism. I'm not going to participate. And it's like, do you want to be at home and depressed? It's not about capitalism. Every human being needs to work at something in order to have mental wellness. It's not about capitalism, but there can be this real black and white thinking of like good and evil, you know? And so sometimes when we talk about employment in the future, that is lumped in with the evil.
1: Yeah. I, I feel for these kids. I was right there. I was an anti-capitalist 16-year-old myself. And, yeah. you know, it all kind of comes back to the serenity prayer, right? Like mm-hmm. what what can and can't you control, you know, setting aside any discussion of, mm-hmm. you know, which is better capitalism, communism, social, you know, setting aside any of that, Yeah. just the practical reality of like, this is the world you're living in. You're probably not equipped to change the way all of society is structured, especially mm-hmm. if you can't even get your laundry folded. So mm-hmm. how about we just adjust to the environment we're in and look at what we can control, right? Yeah. We can't control mm-hmm. that we live in a capitalist country, setting aside right. discussion of whether that's a good or bad thing. Yeah. What we can control is what direction you choose to go with mm-hmm. how you're gonna look after yourself, what interests you're gonna pursue, how you're going to use money in your own life, but you're definitely gonna need it, right?
0: Yeah, But also, yeah. It's, it's
1: hard to see the future. I mean, the developing brain of any young person, mm-hmm. it, you know, our, our ability to actually see and plan for future consequences doesn't mature until our 20s and then yeah. add some kind of neurodevelopmental disability on top of that. It's very hard to mm-hmm. think clearly. But I want to talk about differential diagnosis because you brought up mm-hmm. an important point that a lot of these autistic kids have multiple comorbidities and mm-hmm. then and, and real comorbidities, right? Mm-hmm. But then you add to that <laughs> that they're looking to self-diagnose on social media where identity gets wrapped up in it. Um, mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the differential diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly, I'm curious about your thoughts on the comorbidity rate between autism and obsessive compulsive disorder.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, where should I start? Self-diagnosis online... Sorry, I yeah. threw like three no, that's questions okay. at once, did I? <laughs> I know, Wherever that's you okay. want to go. Just the way my brain works too. I'm like, okay, which one, where do I go? Um, yeah. So let's see, self-diagnosis online um, and then making an identity out of it. I have concerns because as clinicians, we know that diagnosis is not that simple and we are always looking at differential diagnosis. For autism in particular, you need to take a full developmental history to get the most accurate diagnosis. Um, and I don't see that happening online with children. It's just not possible. So I worry about that. Um, and then I worry that you know maybe something else is being missed maybe it's not autism so we know that autism looks like other things autism can look like borderline personality disorder which I, we don't give to kids but late teens early adulthoods that we might start to see some traits um it can also look like ocd and then the the dia- the diagnoses can exist together so why does that happen is that was your was that your question?
1: Well, uh, actually, yeah. Well, I'm curious about with OCD, but you brought up borderline personality disorder, so I'd I'd love mm-hmm. for you to elaborate on that
0: confluence. Yeah. So there can be a lot of misdiagnosis. There's a there's a thought that there's a lot of misdiagnosis that autistic adult females are misdiagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Um, The two conditions look a lot alike in some people, in adults, but this is why we need a developmental history because in order to diagnose something as autism, we have to have seen the traits in early child development. We usually see them by age three. They're toddlers. Whereas with borderline personality disorder, we're seeing that in late teens at the earliest. Um, and it's usually, we think that it's related to complex developmental relational trauma within the family. There, may, there might also be a genetic um, predisposition, but autistic children will have a similar presentation to borderline personality disorder without all that family trauma. And so we need to know the background. It's not, you can't just pick things off of a list. Um, and I think that the reason the two can look a lot alike is because they both struggle with emotional and physiological dysregulation. Um, they both struggle socially. But the social differences, I think, are are different. Um with autistic adults and and adults with borderline personality disorder. But on the surface, they can look a lot alike if you just take a snapshot. And then some people have both diagnoses because there was a lot of relational trauma um, that, you know, maybe caused them to develop the borderline traits. So, I'm thinking...
1: Uh, in terms of overlaps too between mm-hmm. autism and borderline personality disorder is that theory of mind is not very well developed in either mm-hmm. condition, right? Mm-hmm. And and for different reasons. For autistics, yeah. it is neurodevelopmental that the parts of your brain that have theory of mind don't work the same way. You have to learn it a different mm-hmm. route. Hopefully you have support developing theory of mind and then yeah. you can have a very robust theory of mind. Again, it just goes through that different ro- route. Um, Mm -hmm. For people with borderline personality disorder, I see a need to strengthen their theory of mind as well. So by theory of mind, Mm -hmm. I kind of mean empathy, but I I mean the ability to do it mentally, right? Not just emotionally that you're feeling what someone else is feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you were saying, people who are autistic can be very empathic, especially women, in that Mm -hmm. way. But the ability to think about it from the other person's
0: perspective
1: more, more yeah. from a logical place, right? Mm-hmm. Cognitive so,
0: empathy, right? I think they right. call cognitive that cognitive empathy. empathy. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And so with with borderline personality disorder, rejection sensitivity is mm-hmm. a big problem, right? And and mm-hmm. you know, I wrote a thread on rejection sensitive dysphoria. It can be a component of ADHD, borderline. Mm-hmm. It can it can be an experience yeah. that many people have in different contexts, mm-hmm. and it can range in severity and frequency. But Mm -hmm. with borderline personality disorder, there is incredible sensitivity to real or perceived rejection or abandonment of Mm -hmm. any kind. And then there are maladaptive Mm -hmm. behaviors in reaction to that rejection-sensitive dysphoria. And theory of mind is something that can really help with rejection sensitivity because Mm -hmm. a lack of theory of mind is going to interpret things in your negative automatic ways, which is, Mm -hmm. it must be my fault, It's because Mm -hmm. I'm bad and unlovable in all of these ways, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it can really help to have a few alternative explanations in your pocket, you know, like maybe he didn't call me back because he's busy. Yeah. Maybe she ended the conversation because she had to go to the bathroom. I mean, there there are so many reasons that, uh, that someone can do something that we perceive as rejection or abandonment and while mm-hmm. it's true especially if you have an untreated mental health problem and you have some maladaptive behaviors it is true that you might actually be engaging in some behaviors that are alienating other people but it's yeah. also likely that you're overreacting right and and that mm-hmm. there are some some different ways of coping and yeah. even if it is a real rejection um mm-hmm. You might be perceiving it more intensely and having a more robust theory of mind, even in in this situation where the rejection is real, can still help you come up with better ways to deal with the rejection, like knowing when it's appropriate to say, hey, I'm sorry, was that joke too much earlier rather than just cutting off the relationship entirely? Yeah. So, you know, that's where something like mentalizing therapy can really help. Mm
0: -hmm, Exactly.
1: Can we talk about OCD, though? Um, because, you know, you, you've mentioned the rigid black and white thinking that autistic Mm -hmm. people are vulnerable to, um, what are your thoughts and observations about the prevalence of obsessive compulsive disorder in people who are autistic?
0: Um, I see it being highly prevalent. I, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, um, and my thoughts are i mean i imagine it's there's something to do with the the neurology the brain wiring that's similar um and the tendency to get like cognitively stuck on things um the tendency to have a hypersensitive uh feeling of like danger and threat that leads to a lot of anxiety and the OCD rituals and behaviors and, um, thoughts might help relieve some of that anxiety. One thing that people sometimes mix up is, um, the repetitive behaviors of autistic people tend to be comforting and soothing, whereas, and they're not, they're not, um, they're not done in, in so much distress always, whereas in OCD, it's my understanding that the repetitive behaviors kind of cause, they cause more distress. They're not as regulating, even though the person thinks that they're going to be regulated by them. But autistic people are truly regulated by their repetitive behaviors. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I think about OCD and autism together.
1: That's an interesting distinction. I don't see a lot of
0: OCD in my practice, though.
1: Okay. Yeah, I I don't have a lot of experience working with OCD either. And I don't have training in, you know, for instance, uh, exposure and response prevention therapy, which is one of the main treatments used for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you talk about the the repetitive behaviors, right? And Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of where those behaviors are coming from. So for someone who has autism without OCD, they Mm -hmm. might spin in a circle five times before they sit down, but it's more about Mm -hmm. that proprioceptive uh, vestibular experience. It's about sense on a sensory level, what's happening in their body Mm -hmm. and nervous system. Whereas a person with OCD might engage in that same ritual, might spin around five times before sitting down, but it's because there is basically a delusional type of thinking that I have to engage in this ritual in order to prevent my mother from getting sick. Right, and and exactly. they might be fully aware. They're like, I know this is delusional. I feel like I'm yeah. crazy, but I just have to do this, or else I have this irrational fear that my mom's going to get yeah. sick. Or they could be on the lower insight end of the OCD spectrum, and mm-hmm. you know, not have very much insight about mm-hmm. how illogical that is. Yeah, um, exactly. But there is, you know, there is that that rigidity, that black and white thinking that that are more like on the, uh, on the spectrum of OCD traits, not necessarily always Mm -hmm. qualifying. Um, Mm -hmm. But then let's get into um, the comorbidity with uh, a real or self-diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, Kids who are Mm. autistic, diagnosed or not, who think of themselves as trans, non-binary, some other gender identity, um, what have you been seeing lately around that? Because I know you work with parents and yeah. you've had a lot of parents coming to you saying that their autistic kids are now identifying as something other than their their birth sex.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that there are several reasons for this phenomenon. Um, and many of them are very real because autistic people tend to be socially nonconforming And that includes gender. So how they, um, dress, how they act, their interests might not, might be further away from the typical stereotypes that we think of with different sexes. I like to use sex. Gender is like, it's so confusing to me. I'm just like, what are we even talking about? Um, So they might not identify as much with the stereotypes of their sex, what they see others in the world looking like and doing. Um, and, And that can lead them to kind of feel like distant from that sex. Like, huh, I don't belong with them. And also there can be the black and white thinking with, if women or girls act like that, and I don't, then maybe I'm not a girl or a woman. So there's that cognitive rigidity that isn't expanding, like a woman and girl can be anything they want. A woman and girl is a you know human female, right? And so I think that that might be part of it. Another part of it is um, autistic people have interoceptive differences. And that is where you don't feel as connected to the physical body. Like You literally don't feel the sensations of hunger as much. You might not feel the sensations of needing to go to the bathroom. Your perception of um, heat and cold and pain might be different. This is very common in autistic people. So when we have that kind of body disconnection, we know that that's part of gender dysphoria is feeling like a distance from your body, your sexed body. And um, another layer is there's a lot of time spent online. And we know that right now online, the popular crowd, if you will, they are calling themselves trans and non-binary And often um, autistic people who feel they don't belong in their sex-based group might feel kind of drawn to this group of non-conforming people. And then they say like, oh, you know, you're welcome here. You belong here. And autistic people tend to, um, you know, dress differently and stuff. So they can start to think of themselves as like, oh, maybe I'm non-binary. I don't dress like those women over there. So I think that there's, there's like social aspects and then there's real like physical neurological aspects to it.
1: I hope you've been enjoying this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop. Where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show.
0: That message that says that there's one way to be a girl or a woman is just so sexist. And I don't feel like that's being talked about enough. Um, but yes, so if you think that there's one way to be a girl or a woman and you don't jive with the way they look and act and are, then yeah, you're gonna, you're going to wanna opt out. You're gonna de-identify with being a girl or a woman. Um so you know, some people might ask, well, what's the harm in that? And we know that. There can be harm in that if it starts to lead down a medical path. And um, autistic people tend to struggle with a a sense of self, like an actual true identity, like this is who I am. Similar to borderline personality disorder, Um, it's thought to be because they spend so much of their life masking and pretending to be someone else. To fit in, that they lose touch with who they are. And so, um, when you grasp on to these other identities, these like trans or non-binary, I don't know, I just see it as another way of trying to figure out who you are. And if as long as that doesn't have serious repercussions for your life, then you know, maybe it's safe, but we know that it's not that way. So I
1: want to play devil's advocate again for a moment with you Mm -hmm. with, uh, the, the concept of identity. Um, Mm -hmm. not, not in general. I mean, identity Mm -hmm. is a real thing. And then there's, Mm -hmm. there are the narratives we have about identity right now, but I I think that's something that's maybe making our collective discourse around this worse is the kind of unspoken expectation that you're supposed to have an identity right Mm -hmm. from the get go. Uh, Because, I I don't know, my identity is hard won. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, like, it, and I think anyone, like, if if you look at the most fascinating people in the world, like, I I would hazard a guess that most of them, like, struggled to develop an identity through adversity that built character. And I think it's very anxiety provoking as a young person to have this expectation that you should know who you are, whatever that even means, right? That you should have a solid sense of identity, self-worth, self-esteem, any of that. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't because life's Mm -hmm. hard without one, but I also feel like, you know, building a character, building a personality and identity to whatever degree you consider these synonymous or not, like, those are lifelong processes you know and a lot of that stuff doesn't even start to solidify until you hit 30 and Mm -hmm. like I feel like we need to somehow make it okay for young people to struggle with this stuff in a healthy Mm -hmm. way to struggle without jumping to foregone conclusions you know without Mm -hmm. pinning themselves into a box of identity prematurely um, and also without despairing over their lack of identity. There needs to be some middle ground where it's like, you know what, I'm just 18. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm gonna be different in 10 years. And right mm-hmm. now I just want an employer to think that I am capable of like serving coffee. You know? Right?
0: Like, yeah. I know you're playing devil's advocate, but I actually agree with you. Um that yes, we know from our fields of uh, child psychology, child development that identity formation is a lifelong process and in adolescence it's supposed to be fluid that is the task of adolescence is going through all of that you're not supposed to be cemented into an identity box um but with regard to autistic people i think that even as an adult they can struggle with feeling connected to like, who am I? There's just like this lack of groundedness in, and I mean identity in the old way that we used to use identity. Um, So there's just kind of, they, they tend to, to especially the girls kind of go with the crowd a bit, like easily influenced, which is a high risk, um, you know, for assault and victimization, because there can be just like a lack of being tethered to something that make that can make you kind of get into more high risk situations. And so that's that's what I mean with um lack of identity that can kind of influence them to want to grasp on this trans identity, to belong somewhere. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's a lifelong process. I wish that we would stop being so identity obsessed. And I think that the adults have kind of done this to the kids. I think we've introduced it to them in a lot of ways. Yeah. There was
1: this, uh, thing that happened at my stepkids' kids school where they, they were supposed to bring, they were given like a brown paper lunch bag empty with a Mm -hmm. little note stapled to it saying, fill this bag with things that represent your identity and really what it was it was a show and tell it was like bring things Mm -hmm. from home so we can learn about you and you know whether it's like you bring a spoon because your mom loves cooking persian food or whatever and right you know it's just like bring your toy soccer ball because you like soccer and i was just thinking like why identity that is such a heavy abstract concept for these kids. Like just bring us something from home to tell us about what you like to do in your free time or what your family's into or whatever. That would be fine. That would be fine. That's all all it needs to be.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. They probably use that word because it's popular and they wanted to show that they're progressive or something. But I agree this like identity focus. It's too much. You know, we earn our identities. And like you said, like you went through a lot to be who you are now. And I'm the same. The only identity I really grasp onto is like, I'm a mother. And I went through hell to become a mother, which is why the identity feels so strong for me. Um, But these kids, I just feel like they're putting their attention and their energy in the wrong place. But, you know, I think that's just what kids do. They do things that the adults don't really agree with. It's just today they have such larger consequences, greater consequences.
1: Yeah. And I worry about those consequences, especially when it comes to concretizing whatever feeble sense of identity you've eked out at the age of 10 or 15 or whatever. Yeah. I, mean, I think about like, yeah. you know, because at that age, you you can you can have an oppositional personality right mm-hmm. and then what you're going to yeah. get pigeonholed as as being the person who always says no to whatever everyone else is saying yes to well that's that's reactive you know yeah. what what if everyone mm-hmm. else is right and you're wrong and you just became the boy who cried wolf because you know nobody's going to believe you because you're just reacting that way by default well you know yeah. it takes a long time for people with an oppositional streak as i personally have <laughs> mm-hmm. you know <laughs> like it takes a long time when you're somebody who has some opposition in your temperament to discover what's worth fighting for, what's worth disagreeing yes. over, right? Yes, and yes. and what's not? Uh, yeah. you know, that's not something you want to be pigeonholed into. You know, same thing with the opposite right. being agreeable. Like, do you want to be the nice mm-hmm. person? Do you want? Are you sure that you want to commit to being the nice person? Because nice yeah. girls get trampled on. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. there's there are just so many things about the the fragility of the budding development of identity early in life, that it's like, you do not want to get locked into that. Like you, you yeah. really want some time to figure yeah. that out. And I just wish that someone had told me when I was, you know, 18 or 20, like, don't worry, everybody knows you're young. Nobody expects you to have much of a personality yet. Just try mm-hmm. to learn the rules and do a good job and, you know, make some money. Yeah. And like, <laughs> get your life. like That's all you got to do. You know, you'll yeah. figure it out later. <laughs>
0: Yeah, live your life, travel, explore, try on different, you know, identities. Um, that's part of being young is is learning about yourself. It's such a beautiful process. I feel so bad that these kids are so focused on putting themselves in a box. Um,
1: and also, and you, it, yeah. Well, I think you learn best about yourself by forgetting yourself. Like, get interested mm-hmm. in the world. You know, that's what makes you interesting—is when you're interested in other people, things going on. Mm -hmm. Get outside of yourself. Yeah, and
0: that builds mental health as well as to stop focusing so inward. We need to focus outward as well to be well.
1: So I feel like we're delivering a lot of value to our audience, and just to really pack a punch. I'm curious, what would you say to a parent coming to you saying, "I believe my daughters are autistic"? And now she's gone down this rabbit hole. She thinks she's trans and she's pushing and screaming for us to affirm, for us to use this name and pronouns. She wants us to take her to the endocrinologist. She wants to start hormones. She wants a binder. She won't listen to anything we have to say. She's very rigid. She just, you know, screams and storms out of the rooms and and calls us names. Um, Mm -hmm. And they think that her autism is playing a role in this. What Mm -hmm. words of wisdom would you have to offer them?
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, first I would take a deep breath because <laughs> it's not an easy space to be in um, because of the rigidity. Words of wisdom. I would probably tell those parents to be a little bit a uh, matter of fact about it all and not to come down heavy contradicting their daughter. So some, so there's like, you know, two polarities immediately affirm. And then also, you know, contradict what they're saying when they claim to be trans or a boy or whatever. I don't, I don't recommend either of those. I think that just kind of being in this uh, middle space in order to, to try to reduce the likelihood that the kids are going to like dig their heels in, Because the more we push, depending on their developmental stage, the more they're going to push back and and really dig their heels into this new identity. So what I would do is I would probably um, take a few deep breaths. I would look for support for myself. And then I would probably look for maybe an exploratory therapist for my child. And I would try to just keep the bigger picture slow down, don't participate in this urgency culture and, um, try to stay connected to your child. That's really important. So we don't want to risk damaging that relationship. And we can do that in a, in a wise way without immediately firm affirming or contradicting. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. And it's happening a lot now
1: mm-hmm okay thank you yeah. so uh tell people where they can find you I, I think you have an Instagram presence you have a blog you offer parent coaching and consultation
0: I do they can find me at tavajonstone.com. that's my website they can find me on Instagram at neurocurious therapist and then on substack I have a substack called wrongthink and it's tava.substack.com. Um, yeah, they can come hang out on any of those platforms.
1: And so, uh, any parents listening to this who want to talk to you, they can they can find out more about coaching and consultation at tavajohnstone.com.
0: Yes, exactly. They can contact me through there, and it, and it's all um, uh, explained about what what that even is, coaching and consultation, on the website.
1: Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, at Some
0: Therapist.
1: If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at some You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.